Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And again, we're doing the show remotely from home and it's a cheerio also to Peter and Rob who are here in spirit. And this is still the stage three restrictions of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'll be doing some work today and some interviews on looking at what's happening with the coronavirus and the monitoring of policing. But before I do that, I also wanted to just send out a dedication to all our our health workers and people who are working for the hospitals and aged care because they really are in many ways on on the front line, particularly in the theatres. It's approximately 4.02 and I'm just going to introduce who will be interviewed today. First up, we're going to be speaking with Anthony Kelly from Kensington Flemington Community Legal Centre. He's the Chief Executive Officer, but he also does some work um, with a website um, looking at legal rights for activists. But we're going to be talking today about a new website that's just been launched. And in that website, it looks at monitoring the policing of COVID-19. And it's vital, and I'm going to read straight from the website just to introduce what's, what's going on here. It is vital that we all observe public health restrictions and help slow the spread of the COVID-19 virus. However, many legal and human rights advocates are deeply concerned about how police will enforce these new public health laws and the potential harms, particularly for individuals and communities who already experience a high level of discriminatory police contact. Police are obligated by law to apply these new powers responsibly, fairly and without bias and prejudice. We have a new website, and I'm going to have Anthony read this out, um, the way it's meant to be read, but I believe it's covidpolicing.org.au. And this particular website helps to monitor the everyday impact of the new policing powers and whether they're being used responsibly. And the site is um, is live, and people can actually report on anything that um, that has happened. Like for example, um, last week we actually did an interview about Mr. Kennedy, um, a, an Aboriginal man that was remanded in custody, and because of the increased police powers and his homelessness, he was um, he, he was arrested. And of course, there was also a safe. 
car protest uh, in, in April outside the Mandra Hotel where countless activists and refugees um, have been were fined, even though the protest was safe and it was in the car and social distancing was being adhered to. So protest rights are already being eroded. Um, so we're going to talk about Anthony Kelly about all this and we'll talk to him about how people can report onto the website and perhaps use a few examples and talk about um, some of the, the, the people that have been fined and a lot of them have, have wanted to remain anonymous, but we need to... We need to give listeners a little bit of a, a, a showcase, if you like, um, about what's happening um, with, with the police powers. After Anthony, we'll be speaking with um, Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council, and we're going to be speaking with him about a digital rally that's happening for the release of the Tamil family. And, yeah, we'll talk about that later. The Tamil family is actually languishing on Christmas Island at the moment where um, the coalition government and Dutton um, will has, has refused to allow the families to live in the community. They were actually thrown there. There's been a lot of legal cases, uh, legal um, battles, if you like, looking at this and court appearances. And this particular family has not been deported, but they are still stuck in limbo and those those children... Look, it's a gross violation of human rights. So it's approximately 4.05, and I'm hoping that we're going to be now... We'll be crossing over to Anthony Kelly from Victoria. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03... 94198377 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 9419837. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. G'day you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we're now speaking with Anthony Kelly, who's going to be talking about the monitoring police uh, policing website for COVID-19. Hello, Anthony. Welcome to the program. Hi, Marissa. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And I was just saying to listeners that we're still in stage three restrictions and, and lockdown. And as you know, there have been many, many issues that have impacted vulnerable communities. Can you start off just t by talking about the project um, and the website and talk about um, how people can report there and, and give some examples? Sure, sure. So... 
pretty early on, really, before the pandemic really struck us, you know, was declared, um, we were concerned about what would happen when lockdown provisions started to be put in place. Um, and, you know, seeing what was happening in other countries, of course, gave us a bit of forewarning about some of the policing that could occur. And it became pretty evident pretty quickly that, you know, of course, being able to safely uh, lock down is a bit of an element of um, privilege, you know, that people with um, comfortable homes and um, a lot of IT support and, you know, um, can eat quite quite easily quarantine themselves or lock down and abide by social... Um, uh, not leaving the house for a period of time, but for a lot of people, of course, that's not possible, either because of the jobs that they do or because of their housing situation and, and where they are. So what this COVID policing environment really sets up for uh, a lot of people in Australia is it changes the available populations for uh, for, for people to experience policing. Um, police generally... Um, um, target particular communities, particular, uh, you know, on a, for a whole range of on a whole range of factors, and that's where we generally focus on where um, policing is discriminatory and unbiased, uh, and um, where policing, you know, targets particular communities such as Indigenous communities and migrant communities, lower socio, so it's concentrated in lower socioeconomic areas of, of the cities and regional areas. So um, what the COVID, what the the lockdown laws um, set up, of course, is uh, this environment where very unclear laws with high levels of police discretion and um, uh, very rapid changes. Of course, no, no one is in, um, totally au fait with all the all the bits of legislation and all the um, particular uh, minute of the restrictions um, sets up a huge recipe for police. Uh, abuse and um, overreach and discriminatory application. And that's the sort of thing, of course, that we want to start tracking. We wanted to develop a way that we could um, collect people's stories and testimony of what they were experiencing so that we could get an idea of what was going on. Uh, Police um, in Victoria said that they weren't going to release any information about where they were stopping people. And, and since these restrictions have come in place, police have only been releasing very um, small, select accounts of their um, of the sort of um, fines that they've been putting out, and then, you know just the number of stops and the number of fines, really, and then a few select anecdotes. But we wanted to get a more accurate picture from the other side of the coin, how people were experiencing it, and um, pretty much straight away website started four weeks ago now and pretty much straight away we started to get quite disturbing accounts of people being stopped for all intents and purposes really unfair and unlawful reasons and um, uh, people being given fines for what uh, certainly from the accounts of the person seemed totally um, unwarranted and also what we also noticed really interestingly was that the, what people were reporting to us, um, the feelings and the impacts of this police stop that they had experienced, um, that, that there was quite um, significant, you know, um, impacts on them. And so they, were, they, they, started, they talked about feeling intimidated, feeling stressed, feeling uh, and feeling like they were interrogated, um, feeling discriminated against, feeling all these range of things. And this is from a a range of people who don't normally get stopped by police. 
Mm. So that was that was one of the dynamics that we we noticed straight away is that um, suddenly a broader range of people were experiencing the sort of things that um, that people that we work with at Flemington Kensington have been telling us for a long, long time. Those feelings about being stopped and asked to uh, to account of why they were in a particular area, uh, where they were going, that stop that's generally that stop and account policing. Um, those experiences are quite profound. And so you mean, like, for example, I was actually reading some information that was emailed to me from the website, and correct me if this is, this is wrong, but um, I believe there was a report on the website about a, a man with a disability who had a head injury, and he was exercising, and he had to sit down to rest. I think there were there were other disabilities that. He's, he had, and he had his support mm. worker with him, and they the police decided that they were going to um, talk to this. I can't remember. I think he, I'm not sure yeah. if he was fined. Do you know what, what's that example? The police approached him. He wasn't fined. He was no. told that he can't he can't just be lounging around. Still intimidation and, though. Yeah, it was intimidating. It was disturbing. It was distressing. It really distressed the that particular person, and he and his carer now are more reluctant to go outside. To, to so get that, exercise. That's despicable. That, that's, that's really, you, you know, even for blind and vision impaired people, when they go to exercise, they have to be guided by somebody else. They mm. have to, you know, and you have to, you can't have social distancing when you're being guided by somebody. You have to take that person's arm or hold their hand. And mm. Otherwise, that blind person might go into the road and get run over. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it, it creates... So will will the blind person and the support worker be fined because they're not practicing, you know, social distancing? If you know, and with this person with a head injury, um, he he had, if he was getting tired, he had a right to sit down. Mm. It's um, there's, there's quite a substantial number of reports have been really similar in this. Is that people who have been exercising who have either um, um, been resting for a period of time and have been approached by police and police not uh, ignoring their account or not, not understanding at all that they're just simply out exercising and having a rest. So there was an, an account we got just recently of an elderly woman um, exercising with her, her daughter walking back and she then basically she stopped to sit for a little while to catch their breath before they walked back home. And again, they were stopped by police. Um, and, and then there was the incident that, that the man was... Washing his car. I'm not sure if that yeah. got reported on the website. Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't recall that one. But a, a lot of a, a lot of the so the the arbitrary nature of some of the police stops has really come out through the reports, and part of it is around that the, no, nothing is defined about exercise. So police are defining exercise and what warrants exercise based on their own assumptions and biases. Um, so that's really interesting by itself, but. Um, it's it's given a broader range of the Australian population experience of the sort of policing that, you know, as I said before, Indigenous and migrant communities have been experiencing for a long, long time. And this sort of it's policing in in many cases, uh, this sort of stop and account policing is very much about controlling public space, who's in it, who accesses it, um, what public space people can access. And policing does that a lot young people in shopping centres, people out in the streets. And um, policing, even if it's procedurally correct, can have this massive exclusionary impact. Mm. 
Um, and so it aligns itself with the sort of curfew policing that we're seeing under COVID restriction. Uh, Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. And in, indeed, you know, one of the things that's, that's really quite apparent here, we're not suggesting that we shouldn't be following these public health regulations, but we're saying, Anthony, isn't it, that there's, there's a lot of discriminatory police powers at play here. Absolutely. So there's a number of things. So that yeah, the health restrictions are uh, absolutely critical to stop the spread and yeah. and to protect our community, etc. And the vast bulk of our um, success in flattening the curve so far in Victoria has come about through community cooperation, that human solidarity that we all have to stay at home and um, look after look after each other. And that's and so policing is another layer on that. And there's a lot of debate and conjecture about whether policing actually causes more harm than, than good in this sort of scenario. Now, we've pretty much universally we've called for a public health approach to this crisis, to this pandemic, and policing has a range of impacts, harms impacts, that can actually exacerbate. So, for instance, a lot of African mums in our area, in, um, in, the, in, the, in the West, are too scared to leave their tiny apartment with their kids because they've been warned by police to stay home. And, you know, this week's kids not getting any sunshine or outdoor play for days on end. Mum's not getting out and getting any exercise. Um, so all of that leads to its own public health harm, as well as the stress and anxiety of people being um, going about their, you know, often limited uh, exercise outside and then being stopped and questioned by police. And so, we, so governments and police command are often oblivious to this. That you know, the policing itself has its own um, series of um, public health impacts and harm. And it's something that this project's really drawing out is uh, all the sorts of impacts that this this sort of policing can have, uh, even when it's done for um, you know for socially justifiable reasons, such as these public health measures. Yeah, Anthony, it's it's very interesting. You know, there's, it, look, the list goes on. You know, you've got people being fined for eating a kebab on a park bench and you've also got people that are homeless that don't have a home to go to, like you said at the beginning, that, you know, those people would would be penalised um, through no fault of their own. And, and it has happened. We actually had an Aboriginal man, um, Mr Kennedy, who's the brother of Veronica Nelson, who recently died in custody in January, and he was um, arrested and remanded into custody last week. I actually interviewed his, law his lawyer. And part of that process was that he was um, fined for not meeting the, the, um, the public health laws by staying at home. He didn't have a home to go to. Yeah, yeah. And the, the lawyers are pointing out at the moment that there's, a, there's basically a, an exemption for homelessness in the legislation. Okay. But it's not being observed by police at all. Policing is still impacting on people who, who um, either have precarious homing, have to leave their homes, or um, one person reported that they were fined after they went to pick up a friend to move into their place because they'd been kicked out of their, their own home because of violence, and they were fined between the two houses. So um, even in that sense where people are trying to, you know, act for their own safety and for, you know, for totally rational meanings, they're still getting penalised by police. 
Um, there's been other cases where um, uh, homeless people have been um, fined for being out, out in the street um, and or sleeping on a park bench. So Victoria Police, ignoring that in some ways it's acting even outside the bounds of the, the, the legislative powers that they're giving, not, re, not recognising that uh, not, not having a home is a justification for being outside the home. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, but you've got it's, it's people a, from all walks and, of life, isn't it? Yeah. And the, and the other aspect of this is that um, COVID, a COVID stop um, can be the initial rationale for the police to stop a person, but that can result in a whole range of other offences that would only come about because that they were stopped by the, by the police in the first place. So it could be offensive language or, you know, a search finding some drugs or a search finding a weapon. And so that increases the likelihood that um, there'll be criminal charges and, young, and people brought into the criminal justice system then uh, because of the result of the, of the initial COVID stop. Uh, and so we all know it's been pointed out quite strongly that um, any custodial settings increases the risk of transmission and um, are unsafe environments because of the inability to socially distance and that close quarter contact. So... Any sort of policing that increases the likelihood of people going into a custodial setting, um, even for a short term, increases the risk for the virus. So it's not a public health response. And we've been calling, like many other agencies, for a reduction in low-level policing um, and you know, or police making all efforts to keep people out of custody. Absolutely. And it's even more important now that we've, you know, the pandemic is happening. Now, Anthony, I'm not sure... Sh- I, I think this is relevant to the increased police pa- police powers, really. I just wanted to to get a comment on this from you. I'm going to be interviewing Aaron from the Tamil um, Refugee Council after you, and we'll probably talk about this at, at more detail. But were you aware that Chris Breen, who's a RAC activist from the Refugee Action Collective, that he's facing incitement charge... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we've been looking at that through the Melbourne Activist Legal Support and other groups. Yeah, so that's a very concerning um, element of the policing of this. So ostensibly, the you know the COVID restrictions restrict public gatherings. Um, there's no specific safety uh, or exemption for protest events. Um, so police decide Victoria decided to take a particular line on that. Um, Action, even though it was organised along very safe, uh, observes you know observing social distance and so forth, but the decision, even even the, so, the decision to find participants in that event was one thing, but then the preemptive arrest of a, one of the key organisers is really disturbing. It's not unheard of, of course. There's been lots of no. other examples where they've preemptively arrested organisers, um, but it's it's so anti-ethical to human rights. Chart, the charter, the you know the protection of human rights. It's really, um, it's really disturbing, and it's a it's a decision that it, it points to that uh, that uh, concept. The Victoria Police are really engaged in this um, strategy of you know limiting movements, limiting the ability of, of uh, groups to organise, um, and also it's also in contrast to New South Wales Police, which have taken a much more negotiated management approach to, to very similar protests. There's been several uh, union and community protests now, car convoys, exactly the same as the way that the uh, Mantra one was going to be organised. Uh, 
the Good Friday protest, uh, and police have just have basically negotiated and left them alone, and they've basically said any traffic infringement or infringements of social distancing laws will police, but otherwise, otherwise the protest will go ahead, and that's what's happened. And they could have taken that approach. Victoria Police yeah. could have taken the same approach. Um, Absolutely. You know, but they decided not to, and it's it's really concerning, and it shows that they've gone beyond the public health um, requirements of this legislation. Indeed, and this particular court case um, for Chris Breen is scheduled for August, and there's a public meeting happening tonight um, via Zoom, um, and Julian Burnside will, will be there. He's representing Chris Breen. But just so that listeners are aware, Anthony, I'll just... Uh, let people know what we're talking about. So Chris Breen was charged with incitement under the 1958 Crimes Act and 29 refugee supporters have been fined $1,652 each, a total of $48,000 in fines for a safe car convoy protest calling to free the refugees from the Mantra Hotel in Preston and across Australia on Good Friday, April 10th. 10, 2020. So it was a very safe protest, and um, I was actually I was actually present at that meeting where they were they were organising it, and it's it's really safe. You know, there were there were people from their own households in the cars, and you know, Chris Breen was actually detained for nine hours at Preston Police Station and, and not given any food, mm. and you know, put in a cell, interrogated. What 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 is this? What is this, Anthony? Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's deeply disturbing. It's it's um, to me, it's an example of blatant overreach, and yeah. it's something that you know we, we can fight it in the courts. And Chris is really adamant about fighting it. Um, oh yeah, he will. And and defend defending it, and that's quite strong. But it also it's important for you know the the wider movements and community agencies to really um, stress how unacceptable this sort of policing is. Uh, not only was it unnecessary, it was, you know, damaging because Chris reported himself. He was more at risk from transmission from the police action than he was from being part of the action. Um, Chris didn't even get to go to the protest. They mm. came to his house, picked him up. Then the other one, the other people, refugee activists, went to the Mantra Hotel and were outside the hotel. And, of course, we all know that refugees um, imprisoned in that hotel, um, there's no social distancing there. And Chris was actually taken to the police station and then the police drove him back and raided his house, took his computer and took his son's computer as well. Mm. Yep, it's terrible. Um, so I suppose, we, you know, we, we're the, talking... Yeah, go on. A, a, another protest on uh, May Day, a small yep. one at the eight-hour monument, was also um, shut down by a small number of police. But the participants were threatened uh, with a fine if they were... Con- continued and they were dispersed. So they weren't actually um, fined. It was, a, it was somewhat of a shift. They, there was no preemptive arrest and there was no... Right. Um, um, and, you know, there was only a threat of fining if people didn't disperse rather than actual fines. So um, so yeah. there was a different, different um, approach. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, so points... I think police were really adamant to to um, shut down that one as an example, partly. But then there was also the um, anti-lockdowns protest in um, Trafalgar in East Gippsland, so central Gippsland, that um, uh, went ahead and apparently 
uh, organisers were fined at that one, but there was a very small police so, presence. And... Okay, so that that was allowed to go ahead. You suppose? Hello, hello. Well, yes, Aren't you supposed so, to be so, staying yes. home? <laughs> so whether or not it was allowed is a um, you know there was only a yeah. small number of police there, probably because it was in a regional area. But um, and I think I've heard since that uh, fines were issued. Um, right. So there was some sort of consistency in policing of that event as well. But it was it was a bit notable that, you know, the, it wasn't the same coordinated response as there was to that... Um, Thank you to for the pointing that out, Anthony. Yeah, that's, that's, a really import, that's really important. And look, we, we've got a couple of minutes left before we go on to Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council. Now, I'm planning to actually put this on the website, Anthony, but um, there's also a, a woman um, who was... Driving to her father's place, they're a migrant family, Italians, and he's an older Italian man. And this particular woman was driving to her father's place to just to get have, have a bite to eat. It wasn't a, a big family gathering, just to have a bite to eat for Easter and to deliver some shopping. And the police stopped her, saw the shopping in the car, said, where have you been? I said, I've been shopping. She happened to say, look, I'm just going to go and drop some stuff off for my father. It's caregiving. And the police said, well, we're not going to find you, but you're going home. You're not allowed to go. Yeah, right. So... Yeah, it is really worried that uh, the police are taking it upon themselves to be the arbiters of this sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, that's what they are. You know, they're, they're, they're given discretionary powers, and that's part of the problem with the, when they don't have enough clarity around them. Correct, but, um, and, and that's important. But, yeah, but but many of the reports that we hear, certainly on face value, the, the accounts that were given, certainly don't seem fair, uh, and they, it seems like the police are being um, uh, overzealous in their policing of a lot of these. And that's not to say that other forms of stops don't, Accounts, police might leave a lot. Of course, you know, have discretion what to leave people alone. Or they might... a reasonable stop, Anthony. What would constitute a reasonable stop? Do you well, think? P- well, it's that's it's really interesting that there's not much um, description in law about um, how police form a reasonable belief. It's one of the problems with the way a lot of the legislation is written and stops, you know, that do require a, a reasonable belief or a reasonable, you know, um, a rationale, but. In, to form in the minds of police, it's very difficult to test. Um, and that's one of the problems with, um, um, you know, with the, uh, the difficulties in proving racial profiling, for instance. Um, but there's still, even the, in the COVID stops, police do need, still need to form a reasonable um, suspicion that something is um, uh, potentially unlawful in order to stop someone. That's right. So, um, and ask them to account. And um, yeah, it's, yeah, we're just we we some of the accounts have seemed bizarre about why the police would um, choose that option and not not decide on the um, behalf of the the person or um, or just shows that there's a, a misunderstanding in the laws and it's not it's not just a misunderstanding it's also just the um, the lack of awareness that police have is that their intervention in a person's life can actually cause harm. Can affect people. And, um, Anthony, yeah, could you just people. tell us the website? If you don't, yeah, just give us the the name of the website. Sure. So it's www.covidpolicing or one word. dot org. dot au. And you can make an account. You can make an account uh, if, if you can let us know things that you just want to let us know about. Um, you can re- relate someone else's account 
um, ideally with their permission or without identifying factors. Yes. Uh, but also if you're a worker, if you're an agency worker or a lawyer or someone you can, um, or if you work with someone who's not able to report themselves, um, you can report on their behalf. So there's, there's an indication that says, I'm, you know, I'm making this report on someone else's behalf. Great. Um, yeah. Anthony, uh, thank and, you so much for coming onto the program. Do you, do you have any final comments you want to make? Oh, look, no, just as I say, we do the weekly roundups. It's worthwhile reading them. We, sort of, we try and summarise what's happening around Australia in um, this sort of policing, what's happening in the landscape. So they're worth having a look at. And if people can share, share the links around, it's much appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks, Marisa. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Viruses like flu and coronavirus spread when tiny droplets from coughs and sneezes land on surfaces that others touch. You can help reduce this risk by coughing or sneezing into your elbow or upper arm. Or use a tissue and put the tissue in the bin straight after. Then wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we just heard from Anthony Kelly, who spoke about the increased police powers and talked about a website that is monitoring COVID-19 policing. And next up on the show, we're going to be speaking with... Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council, and I believe he also does a show on 3CR. Hello, Aaron. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Marisa. It's lovely to have you. Now, in my introduction at the beginning of the show, I talked about a little bit about the Tamil family, and I believe that Priya, Nadez, and their Australian-born girls have been in detention for almost 26 months, and you've been quite involved with them, haven't you? And there have been quite a few legal challenges and apparently on April Friday, April 17th, the Federal Court of Australia found that Priya's youngest daughter, Dianika, was not afforded procedural fairness in her application for protection visa. Can you just give us a little bit of background and talk about the rally? Yeah, so uh, this Tamil 
family, Piria Nades and their two children, they, um, uh, Piria and Nades came to Australia by board in 2012 and 2013 separately. They, uh, you know, fell in love and, uh, and, and got married and gave birth to their two children in a, in a small regional uh, Queensland town called Billawila. And uh, uh, in March 2018, uh, Border Force officers rounded up uh, their house, 20 Border Force officers in an early morning raid, um, went to their house and, and took them away uh, to Broadmeadows Detention Centre. Um, in the first week, uh, when I came to know, I came to know about the family's uh, detention two days later. Uh, in that two days, uh, Piria and Nades uh, were denied uh, um, any contact with the outside world until they signed voluntary deportation documents. Uh, and, you know, on, on the Wednesday, you know, after they agreed to sign the voluntary, uh, uh, you know, return, uh, they were allowed to communicate with their friends in Villa Villa and, uh, and in the Tamil community, and that's when we came to know about it. Tamil Refugee Council put out a press release on the Friday, and by Sunday it was a viral news, and everybody in Australia were uh, shocked to hear how our government treated the family, particularly those two children who were separated from their parents and were taken uh, into uh, detention. Uh, that Tuesday, uh, the family was taken to Perth Airport. They were to be put on a plane and, and, and taken to uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, but thanks to, you know, the legal uh, uh, team and, uh, and members of the Tamil uh, community, uh, we managed to stop the deportation as they were about to board the plane. Um, so they were removed uh, from the plane in the last minute. Since then, uh, it's been 26 months. There has been numerous deportation attempts. There has been many legal challenges. And, uh, uh, you know, the final, uh, the last deportation attempt was at the end of August last year when the family was put on a plane. And uh, in the last minute, they were taken off the plane and, uh, and then, you know, done decided to uh, move the family to Christmas Island Detention Centre where, you know, they have spent millions of dollars uh, to keep the family there, isolated from uh, their friends and uh, everybody they know. Uh, when they were kept in Melbourne Detention Centre, you know, people from Bill Villa were able to visit them. Now they're on Christmas Island. They're in complete isolation um, and you know, through all the legal challenges, we managed to see a win at the federal court um, around Taronica's application. And I'll give a brief background about Taronica's application. Taronica is the youngest daughter of Piria Nades. She was born after Piria met her uh, protection claim. Now, technically, any child born to uh, a refugee is also a refugee. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, technically, Taronika was never assessed uh, for her uh, protection uh, claim. Uh, and so the legal challenge was around, uh, you know, the government failing to assess Taronika's protection claim. 
and and we have seen a small victory in the in the federal court. Um, you know, this the legal system uh, around asylum uh, applications. It's actually not designed to hear asylum seekers' cases. It only looks at judicial errors. It doesn't look at whether the government has uh, uh, written the counter report, um, you know, uh, uh, in a way that it uh, uh, reflects the current situation in Sri Lanka. It doesn't look at the uh, the way, um, you know, the, the, it doesn't look at the the, the process that's being uh, followed. Rather, if there were any judicial errors that were made uh, in in the interview or or in assessing their applications, that's what the courts look at. And so it's very difficult for, you know, once you get a negative outcome from uh, the immigration department, it is very difficult for an asylum seeker to win their case uh, at the at the courts. And, and so, you know, Piria and Nares, despite having strong cases, um, they have been, uh, they have found it very difficult to uh, overturn government uh, decision um, in the in the in the courts. Uh, so we we're at a point where the family is on Christmas Island. They've seen a win where the government had to pay over two hundred thousand uh, dollars in legal costs, uh, but their deportation uh, threat continues. They're still on Christmas Island. Uh, there could potentially be many more legal challenges, which will, you know, keep them in Australia. But if the government refuses to let them out into the community, they will be uh, on Christmas Island for for a long time to come. But how can we see the way forward here legally, Erin? Legally, you know, I, I I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I, I know you're not a lawyer, but as a as a because you're, you're, you're also a Tamil refugee too, weren't you, as well? Yeah, as came well. to Australia as a Tamil refugee back in 1997, a long time yes, ago, yes. As, as an unaccompanied minor. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've heard you speak an, a number of times, um, and it was very impressive, actually. You, you, you're very clear and you're very precise, and, and that's why we've invited you onto the show. But I suppose that the question, I, I, that what I really wanted to ask you is how can we move forward with this? I mean, surely there must be some legal avenue or some, well, it's a moral issue too, where this family can go back home to the, to the community. Look, over 300,000 Australians have signed an online petition demanding this family to be freed and be allowed to return to Bilovila. Uh, the government has sent, uh, spent... Uh, over $30 million, um, when I lasted, this was many months ago, over $30 million to detain this family on Christmas Island, um, to send a message to all the other asylum seekers, you know, that uh, if they come to Australia, they will be treated badly. You know? and, uh, and the government is using this uh, family uh, basically... Uh, you know, torturing this family so that everybody else looking at them uh, would be discouraged to, uh, you know, come to this uh, uh, country uh, seeking asylum. Uh, it's it's so wrong. Over 300,000 Australians have signed a petition. You know, regional Queenslanders who haven't really been 
the ones who, uh, you know, champion refugee rights have been out there, uh, you know, month after month campaigning for this uh, uh, family to be returned to Queensland. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, rather than us looking at legal avenues as the way uh, forward, uh, we need to I put pressure on Scott Morrison and, and Darren to change their mind and let this family return to Bilawila. You know, it is in their hands. If Scott Morrison decides to, you know, sign a paper and, and let this family out, it can end within minutes. Uh, you know, it's in the hands of Scott Morrison and, and Darren to let this family out. Legal avenues are a way to uh, stop this deportation, uh, but it's, you know, there's no clear way for us to use legal avenues to get this family out into the community. You know, like I said earlier, that the legal system is um, not, uh, you know, doesn't work yeah. in favour of asylum seekers. It really doesn't, and, and I'm, thank you so much for pointing that out to listeners, Erin, because it is something that is very important. And indeed, you know, following on from your point about Scott Morrison, the Acting Minister for Immigration, Alan Tudge, and also Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, you guys have the power to release this family and you need to allow them to return back back to their community. That's right. Alan Touch as the acting immigration minister. David Coleman is the immigration minister who is on sick leave uh, since uh, December, and Alan Touch uh, is is acting in his uh, in the, in that uh, portfolio. He has the power to let this family out as well. Uh, we haven't, you know seen any any proper response uh, from them yet um you know if listeners who are you know who are following the story all you can do is you know take part in any actions organized by the the home to be law uh, team um also write to uh, mps uh, you know write to the acting immigration minister or the home affairs minister or the prime minister and and, and ask them to let this family out. Absolutely. And, and keep up the pressure and mass mobilisation because baby Asha was allowed to stay after health workers refused to send her back to Nauru. Exactly. You know, we, we've seen uh, baby Asha uh, uh, deportation stopped and as a result, you know, 267 people uh, who were facing deportation to uh, Nauru uh, were, uh, you know, their deportation stopped as well, and those people are still living in our community. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we can do it with this family as well. Uh, we need more and more people to be get involved, and, and through mass mobilizations, you know, we can stop this family's deportation and possibly save hundreds of other asylum seekers who'd be, who could be... Um, deported as well if this family's deportation goes ahead. Now, if this is the most um, difficult deportation government has faced in many years, and if they are able to go ahead with this deportation, it sends a wrong message to them that they can um, send, you know, deport anyone uh, without any issues. 
and and so it's it's more important for us to stop this deportation through whatever means available. Absolutely, and and in fact, you know, going back to uh, to Nauru, there's been so much damage done to the health of the children by this prolonged detention and the false deportation as well. I mean, I, I believe that Priya uh, initially fled Sri Lanka after witnessing her fiancé at the time being burned alive by the Sri Lankan army. That's right. Um, Priya fled under uh, dangerous Priya. circumstances uh, from uh, from the east. Uh, she, uh, Her fiancé, along with five other men, were burned alive by the Sri Lankan uh, armed forces. And then... Um, you know, Nadez also fled Sri Lanka under dangerous circumstances. And, um, <coughs> uh, sorry, just give me a second. My daughter is uh, okay. in the background That's making right. a noise. <laughs> sorry. Um, right. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, Puria and Nadez fled under dangerous uh, circumstances. Um, and, um, uh, you know, in the last 26 months, while this family uh, is in detention, we have seen so many changes in Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, we had the, the Sri Sena government. Sri Sena was the acting defence minister during the final days of the war in 2009. He, um, uh, you know, he was defeated by uh, the, 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 the Rajapaksha family, that was yeah. um, leading the war in 2009 and, and committed all sorts of atrocities against Tamils. Gotabaya Rajabaksha won the election last November. He, uh, he is the, the president. The prime minister is his brother, Mahinda Rajabaksha, uh, a man who has every right group around the world, has declared him, declared him as, a, uh, as a man responsible for the Tamil genocide. They're both in charge. One of the things that Gotabaya Rajabaksha did recently, while we, the, the whole world is focusing on uh, this pandemic, is release uh, a, a guy who was uh, found guilty of massacring Tamils and was sentenced to death. The guy has been pardoned by Gotabaya Rajabaksha uh, regime and released into the community. Um, and in the meantime, Tamils are being arrested under... Prevention of Terrorism Act and and put in prison uh, without any charges. Um, just last just uh, last in the, in the last two days, uh, we've seen uh, Tamils in the north uh, being beaten up by police for no reason. You know the the human rights abuses continues in Sri Lanka. Since this family was taken into detention, the human rights situation has deteriorated. You know. That, that that's not being taken into account by court. Um, that can only be taken into account by the minister. The minister is is basically doing everything to appease the Sri Lankan government, rather than uh, looking at uh, the ground situation. You know, they don't want to admit the fact that Sri Lanka is dangerous for Tamils, and that's at the heart of you know their attempt to deport this family and every other Tamils going through the, the system. Absolutely. And, look, it's so essential that you are able to talk about the conditions in Sri Lanka because I don't really believe that that is talked about too much on mainstream media. 
and it's terribly important in order to educate people not to demonise um, refugees and all refugees, and, but, you know, in this case we're talking about Tamils, to talk about what they have actually fled from. Um, I believe that there's a... We're nearing the end of our show now, but I believe there's a, a digital rally happening. Is that allowed to be spoken about on air or not? Oh, look, uh, the digital rally happened on uh, Saturday night. Oh, it's night. happened already. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not uh, very good with the internet, I'm afraid. Yeah. Go on. No, no, that's okay. Uh, we, we're all learning how to organise online thanks to the uh, pandemic. Um, yeah, we okay. had the digital rally. About 190 people attended the rally on Saturday night in support of this family. It was organised uh, on such a short notice and it was a great turnout. Um, we had Piria joining uh, live from Christmas Island. Uh, we'll be having similar actions uh, in the future. Uh, if any of you who have missed the rally want to uh, go and listen to what Puria had to say, uh, you can uh, you know, follow Tamil Refugee Council Facebook page uh, and, uh, and the, the, the video is available on the, uh, on the page. Um, and your radio so show at 3CR as well? Yeah, the 3CR radio show uh, is, is on Saturday at 1 o'clock, Tamil Manifest uh, program. Uh, Umesh is the one who uh, does the show. Uh, you can uh, listen to the, the show as well and, uh, and get more updates. Thank you so much, Aaron. Now, just very quickly, I, I, we, this has already been spoken about. With Anthony Kelly, um, we were talking about increased police, police powers, and one of the topics discussed was the, the car protest down at the Mantra Hotel in Preston, and in particular we talked about how Chris Breen was arrested and given a 1958 charge, incitement to riot, I believe. Um, were you present at, at that protest? Yes, I, uh, I took part in that protest action. And, okay, um, we better be careful I, I, with contempt of court, but yeah, just we'll watch that. But but yeah, I believe that you were you were you were fined. What, what were the charges? Uh, look, I I don't I don't know exactly what the charge is, but I I've been told that uh, I breached uh, uh, the chief medical officer's directions to stay at home. Such nonsense, um, Aaron. I, I am a union organiser and, and I was doing my job organising the community um, and so I will definitely be um, uh, def defending it. I mean, regardless of whether I'm a union organiser or not, the community, um, you know, we can't just sit at home while uh, all these asylum seekers' lives are uh, put at risk. Um, you know, all these people, uh, the medical experts advise the government that uh, the you know the the people in detention are at risk of catching the virus and could possibly die in detention because of underlying medical conditions. Um, there is a Tamil man in Maita detention centre who has been detained for almost 11 years. He's been diagnosed with leukemia. The man has been fighting cancer without any proper medical support from the government. And then on top of that. He has to worry about whether he will catch the virus or not in a place where he can, you know, social distance, maintain social distance. Um, you know, they're regularly in touch with so-called guards, 
border force officers, medical professionals and, you know, food delivery drivers and, you know, all sorts of people. These people in detention can't self-isolate. While our government puts uh, these people's lives at risk, we can't sit at home. So, That's you know, right. we did the right thing by protesting. It's It's actually the Daniel Andrews government who decided to take action against protesters who should be, uh, you know, uh, uh, who should be embarrassed for how they uh, treated uh, Chris Breen and, and, and the rest of us. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure if they don't reverse these uh, uh, charges or the, or the fines, uh, we'll be fighting it um, uh, and, and we'll be fighting it very hard. Look, thank you so much, Aaron. I really wanted to talk to you about that. We're nearing, we're just about out of time. Thanks for your company. And I'm hoping we can have you back soon for future updates. Thank you, Marissa, for having me on the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. And that was Aaron from the Tamil Refugee Council um, speaking about a number of issues in regards to the Tamil family. basically rotting in Nauru, <laughs> hope not, and, and they won't be because we're going to mobilise. And also looking at the um, eroding the right to protest under cover of poor, mon- poor policing of COVID-19.